Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week I started a new series of messages that I've entitled The Book of Exodus, God's Deliverance and God's Deliverers. And in the introductory message I mentioned that it's a bit of an all sorts of a series. It's part book study, part character study, part topical and of course part expositional. Excuse me. Last week was a general introduction to the Exodus story and my goal was to show how Israel's experience of slavery and bondage is dramatically relevant to we who live in the 21st century. The almost ubiquitous modern day addictions are as cruel and enslaving as any ancient Egyptian slave master. And we talked about how God wants his people free, free indeed, and how the book of Exodus is a template of how that freedom can be worked out. I talked about the fact that it is both event and process, being set free and being made free. It's divine sovereignty and human responsibility finally balanced. God does what only God can do, but he partners with us and empowers us to do what we are required to do. The book of Exodus in its structure is a bit like a door that swings on three hinges. It has three main blocks to it. Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 18 is the main story of the Exodus. It's the one that we are really familiar with, and it highlights God's power in the deliverance of his people. From chapter 19 to chapter 24, we have the second block of text that centers around God's covenant with his people, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and it speaks of God's holiness. And the third block is from Exodus chapter 25 to 40, which is about the construction of the tabernacle, and it highlights God's order for his worship and his presence among his people. So we have the first block, God's power, the second block, God's holiness, the third block, God's worship. My plan in this message was to get into the text and begin to unpack chapter 1 and the events that led up to the Exodus. But to be truthful, I got a little bit derailed, and I'll explain why. Probably the the hardest part about writing a book is how to start the story in the first place. The opening passage in any book is especially important, and most authors try and have a striking introductory sentence to grip the attention of their readers. And there are some classics. One of my favorite is C.S. Lewis's Beginning to the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, in which he says, There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Tolkien starts off, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. 1984, George Orwell, it was a bright, cold day in April and the clocks were striking 13. All children except one grow up, J.M. Barry said in Peter Pan. The past is a foreign country, they do things differently there, is L.P. Hartley's beginning in his book, The Go-Between. Mother died today, Albert Camus, The Stranger. Then we have the first sentence to the book of Exodus. And these are the names of the children of Israel. And then there's a whole list of names. And what a letdown. What what a shame. You aren't supposed to start a sentence with the word and. My primary school teacher told me that in no uncertain terms. And I wondered why the writer of the Exodus would do that. And it dawned on me that perhaps this 
Hebrew author of the book didn't have a halfway decent English teacher. My silly ponderings aside, that word and at the beginning of the book is the first example of a literary practice that appears in almost all of the historical books of the Old Testament. The use of the simple copulative and begins with the book of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther and two chronicles. If you read your English translations, often they will have now, but the Hebrew word can equally be translated and. And that feature indicates that the writers are very conscious of the fact that the story that they are telling is a contribution to an ongoing sequence of revelation and narrative. They aren't beginning a new story. It's the continuation of an already existing story. And it's incredibly important that we understand that the Bible isn't just a collection of unrelated stories, poems, songs, prophecies, proverbs, and laws. It is first and foremost a story. The Bible's overarching structure is a narrative, a historical narrative. And every part of the Bible must be seen and understood in the context of that one large storyline. And so by starting with the word and, the writer to the Exodus is telling a story that, that is part of a larger whole. And it was at that point that I got derailed. I got to the word and and got derailed. The Bible is not only a story, it is what we call a meta-narrative or a mega-story. It lays claim to being the story, the true story of both the cosmos and human life within that cosmos. Now, if the word meta-narrative or mega-story or even just story is a bit confusing, then substitute it with the word worldview and you'll come up with the same result. These big stories and the Bible as a meta-narrative, it's a, it's a worldview. Um, it gives people a way of seeing the world. It provides an, an interpretive framework through which people can actually try and make sense of their lives. It gives a context for understanding the meaning of history and it gives shape and direction to people's lives. Human beings are meaning-seeking animals. We are wired for story. And the story, or the worldview, if you like, that we embrace is a little bit like the picture on the box, the front box of a jigsaw puzzle. It provides an overall framework that enables us to locate all the pieces within the box, the straight edges that go to the outside, the blocks of color, and so on. And, and meaning is found by, by joining all of the parts to get that big picture, to get that big story. So stories like this, or worldviews like this, provide answers for the big cosmic questions that we all ask and must have an answer to, uh, to a satisfactory degree. Who am I? Where did I come from? What's gone wrong with the world? Because intuitively we sense it isn't as it should be. What's the solution? Where are we heading? And what's my role in that story? Our identities are storied identities. Of course, the Bible isn't the only meta-narrative on the block. Every culture, every religion, every ideology has its story. And the significant thing is that those stories, those ideas have consequences. And the story that you embrace will dramatically affect the way that you live. 
Let me give you an example. Think of the ideology of the National Socialist German Workers' Party. You would know them as the Nazis. In Germany in 1930, they took control and they had a meta-narrative. And that meta-narrative, that story, sought to answer the big questions that the German people had. Who are you? Well, you are part of the great Aryan race. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that race has been mixed and held back physically and intellectually by inferior races, primarily the Jews, but also the Slavs, the Poles, the Gypsies, the homosexuals and people of colour. What's the solution? Well, the solution was the final solution, extermination. Where are we heading? Well, the thousand-year reign of the glorious Third Reich. What's my role in the story? Your part in the story is complete allegiance to the Fuhrer and whatever may and must be done for Aryan purification and domination. Ideas have consequences. We live by the stories we embrace. Alistair MacIndire in his, in his book Above Virtue states, I can only answer the question, who am I and what, I, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story do I find myself apart? Now, I know you might be thinking, Don, uh, this is just so much mumbo jumbo. This, this is all philosophy and I don't do philosophy. Well, I'm sorry, but of course you do. To be human is to be condemned to philosophy and story. Every culture has its stories. We are born into cultures and we are enveloped and shaped by the stories, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, or whether we acknowledge it or not. The biblical story of which Exodus is a part, of course, is contested by alternative rival cultural stories. The Bible tells a very different story from the secular stories that the world tells about itself. And in our culture, there are a variety of stories. There's the humanist story. Man is the measure of all things, the master of his own destiny, the captain of his own fate. There's the scientific naturalistic, materialistic story, where evolution is king and we're nothing more than biological accidents. There's the now somewhat refuted Marxist story, the search for equality that has everywhere perpetuated inequality. There's the hedonistic story, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow, we'll do it all over again. There is of course the postmodern, no big story story. Don't believe in big stories, they're all just grabs for powers. Create your own little story, you can be whatever you want to be. Now I suspect the average Kiwi doesn't think too much about the stories they embrace, they just buy into a composite mixture of all of the above, probably dominated by the per the. Uh, the pursuit of personal peace, happiness and affluence. But the gospel invites us into the biblical story. Missiologist Leslie Newbegin says, the Bible is universal cosmic history. It interprets the entire story of all things from creation to consummation and the story of the human race within creation and within the human race the story of a people called by God to be the bearers of the meaning of the whole and at the very centre the story of the one in whom God's purpose was decisively revealed by being decisively affected in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the absolute center of this story and we have to understand Jesus within the context of the whole story and we have to understand the whole story in the light of Jesus Christ. So the biblical story of which Exodus is a part claims to answer the deep worldview questions that haunt us all.
So who am I and where did I come from? Well, Genesis chapter 1 and, verse, and chapter 2 tell us that we are part of the good creation of God, created by a good God, mankind being the pinnacle of that creation, made in the image of God and purposed to rule the creative order under his good governmental rule. Well, what's gone wrong with the world? Well, Genesis chapter 3 tells us that. It's the story of a tragic fall that has dramatically impacted not only the human race, but the whole created order. Everything is broken, as Bob Dylan sings. Well, what's the solution, Don? Well, Genesis chapter 12 starts to tell us. God chooses Abraham and his family by the means, to be the means by which he plans to undo the sin of Adam. And the rest of the Old Testament is the ongoing story, the mostly tragic story of the failure of this family. Jesus Christ, however, God incarnate, becomes the one true faithful Israelite who takes upon the sins of the world upon himself at the cross and through his death and resurrection destroys death and dethrones the entrenched powers of this age. Well, where are we heading? to the complete restoration and renewal of God's good creation, which will be inhabited by a new and re renewed humanity. God will redeem as far as the curse is found, as the hymn says. What's my role in the story? To exhibit and proclaim God's gracious offer of redemption to all. N.T. Wright says we need to tell this story as clearly as possible and allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story of the world. Friends, if we aren't enveloped in and shaped by the biblical story, then we will be swept up into one of the various stories that the world tells about itself. And ultimately, we will be increasingly indistinguishable from the pagan world of which we are part. Australian sociologist John Carroll, who makes no claim to be a Christian, believes that the reason the church in the West is in deep trouble is that it has forgotten its story. So Exodus starts with the word and, and it reminds us and calls us to the biblical story, the story the Bible tells, the ongoing story. So the end of Exodus looks back to the previous story told in the book of Genesis. 400 years have passed since the story of Joseph concludes Genesis. And I'm sure you know that story well. Joseph, rejected by his brothers, is sold into slavery in Egypt, but he rises through a series of sovereign circumstances to become prime minister and then become the agent of salvation to the nation and to his family in the midst of a very severe seven-year famine. Jacob, his father, and his siblings and their families move down to Egypt where they find sanctuary from the effects of the famine. A point of note, and we'll come back to this later, is that that stay was meant to be seven years. The famine was a seven year uh, duration. Here, 400 years later, they are still there. So the end of Exodus looks back on that story and connects with it. But Exodus also stretches forward and casts a very long and vital shadow over the rest of Israel's story. And the repeated ands of all of the other historical books reflect that connection. In Deuteronomy and in the, in the closing chapters, Moses prophesies about Israel's future story. He describes a very sorry story, one characterized by disobedience, idolatry, and ultimate exile from the promised land. However, following that, he speaks of a great hope, 
a second exodus, an exodus from a place of exile where the people will be sent because of their disobedience. And he spoke about another prophet, somewhat like himself, that God would raise up a new Moses who would lead his people out of exodus and into the promise land. There would be a second exodus. And many of the prophets, but particularly the prophet Isaiah, pick up and amplify this idea of a second exodus. So in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 11, the prophet says, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. Exodus was the first time Isaiah starts talking about a second Exodus, another Moses, another Exodus for the deliverance of God's people. In Exodus, uh, sorry, in Isaiah chapters 40 through 55, um, there is just this saturation. It, it's replete with Exodus-soaked language and images, and the prophet describes this new and future second Exodus. So in Isaiah 35, he speaks of a people being led out on a highway through the wilderness where waters will break forth in the desert and the ransomed of the Lord will return. In Isaiah 48 and verse 20, he says, Go forth from Babylon. That was the enslaving nation. And he says, You'll be led through the wilderness. You will not thirst because you will drink from the rock. Now that's clearly a reference to the rock of Exodus in the wilderness. In Isaiah 49, verse 24, it speaks of captives being delivered out of the hands of mighty oppressors, and they will be delivered from those who are stronger than them. In Isaiah 51, the sea will be dried up, and a pathway will be made for the redeemed to cross over, and the ransomed of the Lord will return home. Clear imagery from Exodus. Isaiah 52, the people are told to depart from the land of their captivity, the place of their enslavement, and that the Lord would go before them and be their rear guard. You can't read that without seeing Exodus. So there's this idea as the story unfolds that a second Exodus will come, a new Moses will be brought into the situation and be the deliverance of God's people. And then you come to the New Testament. And as I've noted before, the New Testament is not the beginning of a new and different story. It is the continuation of the ongoing story that has been decisively shaped by the events of Exodus. And it is, in fact, the fulfillment of the prophesied second Exodus. Uh, a few years ago, I went into more detail about this uh, in a series that I called an Exodus-shaped Christmas that I think you could probably still access if you wished. You can't read the story of Jesus. You are not meant to read the story of Jesus without seeing that he is the prophesied new Moses and that his ministry is initiating the prophesied and much expected new and greater second exodus. So Matthew states in, in chapter 2 and verse 15 that Jesus, like Israel, is called out of Egypt. Herod in the New Testament is the equivalent of Egypt's Pharaoh as he tries to kill the firstborn. Pharaoh was thwarted by the midwives. Herod is thwarted by the Magi. Israel is tempted in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. When John the Baptist pointed at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he's referencing the Passover lamb whose blood was shed to save the nation of Israel. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul specifically says, Christ, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed for us. He's the fulfillment of the supernatural manna, the bread that 
fed people in the wilderness. And that's the, that's the crux of John chapter 6, as Jesus says, I'm the bread of heaven. And, and the people were offended by that. But he's also the fulfillment of the supernatural rock that followed Israel in the wilderness and provided water for them. Paul notes that connection in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and John chapter 7, where Jesus stands and says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me, are all references to and are shaped by Exodus. He's the true tabernacle. In Exodus, they build a tabernacle for the presence of God where heaven and earth meet and God can be worshipped. John chapter 1 verse 14 says he came and dwelt or tabernacled among us. Jesus is the new tabernacle. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah meet with Jesus and speak to him. And Luke's gospel tells us what they were speaking about. Luke chapter 9 verse 31 says they talked over his exodus, the one that he was about to complete and accomplish in Jerusalem. There is a distinct link with the New Testament story in the book of Exodus. This is the end of Exodus, the chain of that historical narrative. God is acting in and through Jesus to set people free from slavery and from forces bent on their destruction. Through the blood of a Passover lamb, he brings forgiveness, restoration, salvage, renewal, not just humanity, but ultimately to the whole of the cosmos as far as the curse is found. You come to the final book, the book of Revelation, detailing the ultimate consummation of God's eternal purposes to renew all things, and it's exodus-shaped. It's got plagues, it's got the judgment of God on his enemies, it's got a blood-soaked lamb, and it's got people singing the song of Moses and of the lamb as they are made free. It is covered with exodus fingerprints. The Bible is one whole connected story and the book of Exodus is a vital link in the chain. So that's the word and, the very first word of the book of Exodus. And as I said, I got somewhat derailed by that word because I want you to see it's part of a bigger story. Please don't, don't be too alarmed that we've you know, spent the whole day or the whole message talking about one word from the book of Exodus. I know some of you are probably thinking if he goes this slow through the, re the rest of the book, we'll probably won't be finished till 2050. I promise we'll move faster in subsequent studies, but I really wanted you to see how Exodus is part of a bigger story and how the word and introduces us to that thought. I especially want you to see that the story of Exodus is our story. Though we are far removed from it, the ands relate us to that story. And the God of Exodus is our God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in the first verses, Paul writing to a Gentile church in Corinth says, Remember our history, friends, and be warned. All our ancestors were led by the providential cloud and taken miraculously through the sea. He's talking about Exodus and he says it's our history and those people were our forefathers because we've been embraced into that story. When Paul in the book of Romans says you have been grafted into the olive tree, that whole story is now our story. They are our fathers and the God of Exodus, the God who delivers people from Egyptian bondage and slavery, from the modern day addictions and the things, the entrenched powers that are designed to dehumanize us and break us. Our God is the God who sets us free from that. Our God is the God of Exodus. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.